Hey, this is Hear This Idea. In this episode, I spoke with Gieve Asadi. Gieve is a research scholar at the Centre for the Governance of AI in Oxford, and his work focuses on conceptually clarifying risks posed by emerging technologies. And in particular, we spoke about Gieve's recent paper titled, Will Humanity Choose Its Future? So when you're thinking about how humanity's future could turn out, you might imagine a few different cases. So maybe humans go extinct relatively soon. Maybe the world ends up being controlled by non-human systems like goal-directed AI. Or maybe the future is meaningfully determined by humans and their values, for better or worse. But Gieve is interested in futures where we end up in a world that wasn't deliberately chosen by anyone. So we talk about whether the agricultural revolution counts as an historical example, uh, possible future examples like competition between digital minds or rapid space colonization, talk about value erosion, and of course, strategies for avoiding getting a future virtually no one would have chosen, uh, like through technologies which could enable better international coordination. Yeah, I really recommend this paper and I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to read it. But without further ado, here's Guy Vassetti. Okay, Guy, thanks for joining me. Dad's great to be on. Cool. So we're going to talk about paper you just wrote. It's called Will Humanity Choose Its Future? Can you just explain what the paper's about? So um, in discussions of ways the future could be bad, there's uh, sort of three types of reasons that have gotten a lot of discussion. Um, so one reason the future could be bad is there could be no powerful agents to deliberately make the future valuable. Um, so most uh, extinction events that people are concerned about, like pandemics or asteroids, uh, would fall into this category. Mm. This is bad as in like not discernibly yeah. good rather not, than not positively Not as terrible. good as we might have hoped. Sure. Yep. It doesn't have to be actually negative in value. That's that's an important point. Um, but the, the first category is things where there's no one around to make it good. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that, that could be um, almost any extinction event. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another... Another category, um, which is often uh, the subject of like dystopian science fiction, is that there could be a powerful human civilization, but it's directed to bad goals. So that could be if there's like a some kind of enduring dictatorship, like the it's the phrase from Orwell is like uh, if you want an image of the future, imagine oh, a boot, a, a boot stamping, stamping on, on a, a human forever. face forever. Yeah, nice. Yeah, this kind of thing. Um, but but it doesn't really have to be a dictatorship. You could have like a some kind of democratic state where they vote on what to do and they just pick something um, bad for whatever reason. Yeah. Or just like incredibly mediocre. Right? Or, or mediocre, exactly. Um, I guess this is a point that's going to come up repeatedly. Is like It seems like a, a, a vast range of different things are possible in the future. And so if you really want the best possible outcome, then um, most possible futures are uh, not that good from that perspective. Yep, yep. Um, and then a third category of, of thing that people worry about, which um, especially in the last few months has been getting a lot of attention, is there could be powerful so hot right now. rational agents, very hot right now, but they wouldn't be human agents and they would drive the future in a bad direction. So obviously yeah. like AI uh, would be in this category. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Specifically like, you know, sort of Terminator type scenarios where the AI takes over. Yep. They have bad goals and they're like entrenched. We can't reverse them. Yeah, exactly. Game over. Um, and, and these are all, you know, worrying possibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, but I also don't think this list exhausts the reasons why the future might not be as good as we had hoped. Mm -hmm. um, and a kind of simple way of seeing that is that if you think about bad changes that have happened historically, mm -hmm. um, so obviously none of those are in the first category. Human mm -hmm. extinction has not happened yet. Um, some of them are in the second category. Yeah, none of them are in the third category either. Um, unless you mean from the perspective of Neanderthals or gorillas or something. Yeah. Um, the second category, for sure, like that, that includes um, some events were deliberately chosen by people and were bad. But also a lot of bad things um, don't really seem to have been chosen by anyone per se. They were just the outcome of a kind of undirected process. Mm -hmm. Chosen by anyone or anything. Anyone or anything. Yeah, anyone or any group. Yeah. Um, do you mean something else by thing? Except well, person or group? Because you're suggesting that AI is a thing. But like the, the example that I, I sort of frame the paper with is that um, the one very popular view of the agricultural revolution, um, which was, was stated in a very punchy way by Jared Diamond in the 90s. And some people think that like more recent um, evidence in from from the field of ancient DNA has tended to bear this out, is that the reason that like farmers displaced hunter gatherers over almost all of the Earth's land is because um, farming just produces more calories per unit land yep. and farming communities can expand. Yep. I mean, farming communities will experience a faster population growth rate and that means that they can outfight hunter gatherers. But um, farming is, is a much worse life mm -hmm. in various ways. And so um, uh, the sort of demographic expansion of uh, the early farmers um, kind of like wiped out a more natural, more appealing lifestyle and replaced it with like, you know, slavery and and much more infectious disease um and uh being further away from nature um and other things that people don't like um and one might be worried that like there will be some something like this could happen again yep. in the future yep so the idea with the agricultural revolution example is that presumably very few people or at least it's not necessary that anyone thought oh it'd be really nice if um the world were just covered in agricultural civilizations right um in place of hunter-gatherer ways of life but it just happened anyway because lots of people were making lots of sensible local marginal decisions and they added up to something which almost no one at least immediately after the agricultural revolution would have preferred if it's the case that quality of life tends to be a bit worse than hunter-gatherer societies right yeah that that's exactly it so um it, to be clear it's not like um there are tons of memoirs from this period that we can read yeah, right. about people explaining <laughs> that they didn't want to become farmers, but they, you know, but like at the margin, that was the best decision. Yeah. Um, but it seems like a kind of plausible big picture account of, of one of the most important transitions in the history of our species. And um, I think that's enough for, for this sort of concern about the future um, to be worth thinking about. Yeah, got it. I'll try like re-saying what you've said so far to be clear. So you're saying different ways the future can be bad, as in not not great. Um, one is there's just no one around to choose a good future. For instance, we will go extinct. Another is people choose a bad future. A third kind of category is that um, some other kind of agent, like an AI or group of AI agents, choose a bad future because they've got like values that we don't we don't care about or something. But that doesn't exhaust the ways that the future can be bad because there's this extra way, which is that no one chooses, but nonetheless, we arrive at some future which no one would have wanted or very few people would have wanted. Exactly. And agricultural revolution seems like 
at least a kind of existence proof such that maybe it's worth worrying about this happening again in the future. That's exactly right. Great. Um, all right. Well, could you say more about, use this term evolutionary future um, yeah. to describe this kind of future, but can you say more about exactly what that means according to you? Yeah. So the definition I use is an evolutionary future is a future where to, due to competition between actors, the world develops in a, def in a direction almost no one would have chosen. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a couple issues with this definition. Um, so one is actual choice versus would have chosen. Mm -hmm. um, so it could be that like by coincidence, um, like if we go back to the hunter-gatherer example, maybe that example is wrong and farming is better. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if that were the case, you would have a process that no one chose, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that but it was good. But that resulted in something that people would have chosen. So these things can come apart. And what I really focus on is more whether there is the actual possibility of choice, not whether the the eventual outcome will be something that is objectively worthy of choice or would have been chosen had choice been possible counterfactually. Yeah, got it. That's a nice clarification. So, I mean, I guess this is relevant for the like all things considered normative questions about whether the future will in fact be better, but it's easier to talk about, will we from our perspective choose a future that we from our perspective prefer or not, right? Exactly. I guess one example that comes to mind is like, I think Robin Hanson talks about this in the M context is that maybe we end up modifying our preferences to like suit some circumstances better like we just love work more and then like in some sense ex post we would have chosen that but from our perspective we wouldn't yeah you know? i mean so this is another this is another issue that i think is definitely related but a bit separate is there's like ex ante versus ex post would we have chosen it yeah um and i do mean ex ante would we have chosen yeah. it because it does seem like uh, a, a lot of things function better when the people involved have some preference for it to be that way and i think regardless of the exact details of what happens in the future. Yeah. Um, it seems like a reasonable bet that the agents that are involved will think this is a reasonable way for things to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Okay. And, um, but, but there's a further question of whether like at some prior time, uh, anyone chose for things to develop in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So that's another, uh, issue with the definition. There's also an epistemic obstacle to choosing the future. Like you have to know enough to be able to, uh, understand what an action now will mean, mm -hmm. you know, millions of years from now. Uh, that's obviously not possible right now. Um, yeah. And it may never be that it becomes possible, um, but that's yeah. that's uh, out of scope for this paper. Yeah. yeah, but it's this like conjunction of, we wouldn't choose the future if we were to be able to see it. And also that future comes about through these like competitive- Through competitive pressure. So yeah, th that's where the focus is. Okay, a natural next question is whether there are, rough examples that come to mind when you're thinking about what this could actually look like, what this kind of evolutionary future could be? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So the um, the thing you just alluded to with Robin Hansen's work is um, a big example. So if at some point it's the case that um, uh, a lot of the minds that are involved in economically relevant labor are implemented digitally, mm -hmm. Um, so Hansen talks about this idea of M's, which is like you scan someone's brain and then you determine what information processing is happening in the brain and then you duplicate that on a computer. Um, you could just have like a, a de novo AI that doesn't emerge from a brain scan um, that counts as a mind in some relevant sense. Yep. Um, and uh, if these things are like doing most of the useful work in the future, 
you might think that they'll um, kind of rapidly evolve because they might it might be possible to directly edit them. It also mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. might just be that like, you know, like the thing about computer programs is you can copy them as much as you want. Um, and so the, the generation speed could be extremely fast. So they could change a lot very quickly. Um, and there, there have been various uh, concerns that people have raised about this kind of scenario. I mean, obviously it's very speculative, but one thing um, Nick Bostrom brings up in his brief discussion of this issue in superintelligence is that um, you might have minds that lose the ability for conscious experience if that's kind of dead weight that doesn't help them like. Yeah, right. It just doesn't contribute to your to, like filing legal being briefs complete. or whatever they're right. supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, and so that's obviously a way that the value of the future could be greatly diminished is if there's nobody to experience it. Um, but, you know, it could be other things, too. Like maybe they just kind of like lose interest in music. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not that I'm not that I think that in particular is super likely. Just just to <laughs> give your mainline doom scenario. Yeah, so forget about music. Yeah, yeah. Like in general, right? The question is, what determines what most digital minds could look like after some long period of time through competitive pressures and things that come to my mind, like, well, if you're generally more like economically productive, probably you're more likely to end up being copied. If you just really yeah, care about copying right. yourself, that's also a thing. That's another one. Um, also, maybe if you're more like um, able to use force in some way, that might help mm-hmm. you to be copied. Yeah, if you're like grabby in some sense. Yeah, or, or I mean, if maybe the minds that are really good at executing cyber attacks or something. I don't uh-huh. know. I see. Yeah. Uh, but I guess the the concern here is something, or the 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 idea here is something like we might end up with a a, a world where um, most of the people um, are uh, very different from people today. Yeah. And um, in ways that uh, we might have not liked at the beginning. Yep. Yep. This makes sense. And it is a further normative question whether that's a good or bad thing. Okay, so that's one example of what you're calling an evolutionary future. That is, most minds end up being digital minds, and there are these competitive pressures that make them very different to human minds, and in a way that like, we, from our perspective, would think is kind of weird or bad, or wouldn't prefer in any case. Yeah. Um, nice. Any other examples? Yeah, so another one is um, there's there's a hypothetical that's related to space colonization, which is like, what if you have a kind of wave of different um, spaceships emanating out from the Earth, trying to claim as much of space as possible? Uh, and the thought is you might end up with the, the people that just want to copy themselves as much as possible, getting a larger and larger fraction of the colonization wave over time. Yep. Um, and, and so just to back up a little bit, the reason that there's this wave structure is because, um, there's like an inherent speed limit on going through space, speed of light. And, um, that means there's a very significant first mover advantage. Mm -hmm. So the first uh, group to pass through an area might be able to, um, you know, they might be able to get enduring advantages by being first. Um, and so if you combine the enduring advantage by being first and the, the potential advantages that certain the potential speed advantages that some kind of agents get like they just want to copy themselves as quickly as possible um that could uh lead to a similar reshaping of civilization yeah that makes sense and then like in particular if there's ever a trade-off between being really good at grabbing more space and quickly and doing any other goal things that we'd like yeah future people to do then the worry kicks in again that this is like a bad kind of evolutionary future from a perspective yeah or i mean may not be bad but not something we would not preferred yeah yeah yeah, sure one thing 
I want to ask you about is that when I think about like historical examples, so we talked about the agricultural revolution, there's also this general dynamic people talk about of a Malthusian trap where like population rises to the point of subsistence. Um, it seems notable that the last couple centuries at least don't really resemble these worrying evolutionary competitive dynamics. Like actually we're well above subsistence um, talking very generally. Yeah, and getting higher all the time. Um, so why think these evolutionary pressures return? Are we just like out of that phase? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a very fair question. Um, so why are we above subsistence right now? Mm -hmm. The reason is because the rate of economic growth currently exceeds by a lot the rate of population growth mm -hmm. in almost everywhere in the world. Um, and that means that the per capita income is growing. Mm -hmm. um, so if you think at some point economic growth will slow down. Um, Relative to population. Yeah. Or just, I mean, just, just like uh, in a more basic sense, like there's a question, can the current rate of economic growth continue indefinitely? Um, there are various arguments uh, that cannot. Um, I, it, the one that's most persuasive to me is something like, I associate this with Eric Drexler. Mm -hmm. It's something like, look, um, for most, we have like fixed laws of nature. And um, for most general classes of tasks, there's probably going to be a best way to do it relative to some fixed laws of nature. So if economic growth comes from technological change, eventually technological change has to slow down because you're you're kind of approximating the best way to do it. Yep. Okay. Um, There's just like a minimum amount of energy that you need to like air condition a room. Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah, air condition a room, or or like um or indeed grow food, know, right? like computer floating point operation, or or grow food, or whatever you know, whatever it is. Um, there's probably if there's not exactly one best way to do it there's at some point like additional optimization is is going to not yield as much mm -hmm. or or that seems very intuitive to me i mean i guess i, I you know I'm, I'm i'm open to debate on this point but um if that's true and if um population growth continues um we eventually might be back at subsistence so you could have this view which i, I think robin hansen does um and i think is not crazy that we're kind of in a brief uh, sort of interlude out of a Malthusian period, um, but eventually we will be back in a kind of Malthusian situation. Got it. Why expect population to continue growing back to the point of subsistence, given that presumably no one would prefer to live in such a world compared to a world where we have abundance per person? Yeah, I mean, you could make a couple arguments. So one is like, um, if, if we're uh, allowing uh, digitally implemented minds to count, those are super easy to copy. Mm -hmm. So that might, we, we might get back to subsistence. Very, I mean, it may not take like a broad consensus to get a, such a population increase in that kind of situation. Um, another argument that people make, and, and there's been some interesting pushback on this. This one I'm really not as sure about um, is that like, well, what's more evolutionary selected, evolutionarily selected for than fertility? So in the long yeah, run, yeah, right, like you right. just, I mean, that's one argument people make, um, and and that's kind of associated with uh, this idea that like some small groups that have very high fertility right now, like the Amish, are a classic example. 
um, will will eventually be yeah. like a big proportion it's like by of, definition. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it does have this kind of too cute quality yeah. to it. Um, and there's a paper that um, I actually highly recommend um, by, by by a bunch of people, but the one who I know is Kevin Kuruk. So uh, um, let me let me see if I can find this, and maybe that can be put in the show no- show notes or something like that. Yeah, where he basically they basically argue um, against uh, this perspective that population growth eventually has to speed up again. Uh-huh. Um, okay. And and anyway, I think that's like still very much an open, uh, open and debatable thing. And of course, anything to do with di- digital minds is open and debatable because it's such a speculative issue. Um, but those are two sort of rough arguments. Yep. Is this related to you mentioned? Robin Hansen has talked about it. This idea of dream time. Yeah, this is the so the, the dream time idea is this thing I've been talking about. Basically. Yeah. Like the dream time is a time when um, temporarily population growth is much slower than economic growth, and that means that people are are just much more unconstrained in what they can do. Um, and so Hansen, you know, like Hansen has a sort of rich set of associations with the idea of a dream time. Um, like he has a yeah pretty interesting list here. Well, anyway, I mean, it's like he he associates it with like people's um, beliefs being like much less accurate and or or at least um, like not accurate and not um, serving some very specific purpose. Okay, because uh, you don't have all these hard constraints on just like yeah. actually having to believe the right things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like like presumably, if you're a like a you know subsistence fisherman and you have the wrong beliefs about where the fish are, that's not going to last. Yeah. Um. Whereas, like you know, like my opinion about like you know, the, the rebellion in Russia right now just has very little to yeah. do with my, like, uh, evolutionary fitness. I feel like that's also true of a subsistence fisherman. Yeah, but, I mean, he probably doesn't spend as much time working right. about stuff I guess you like have, that. like, okay, you have all this free time to, like, yeah. own beliefs about random things. Um, and also it's not important. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can push back on this, so you can be like, oh, well, he probably has a lot of ideas about, like, um, water spirits and so on. Mm-hmm. I think the next step in the dialectic is to say something like, yeah, well, um, those can serve an adaptive purpose. Like, are, are you familiar with this, um, this thing from... Uh, Joe Heinrich's yeah, book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right. he, not, not the well, like food rituals before just... that. Yeah, I mean, he talks about this uh, tribe in Canada where um, they hunted caribou and they didn't want the car- They didn't want to like consistently prefer some places uh, because then the caribou would learn that and they would not go to those places anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so they needed to randomize where they would go. And so they would use divination with oracle bones to determine where the caribou were. And the thought is like, this is a genuine randomization process. Yeah. Um, so there's yeah. no way the caribou can figure that out. Yeah. Um, so you might you might have this kind of analysis of what appear to be strange beliefs of people at subsistence. Yeah. But certainly that's they seem like remarkably adaptive when you look at them closely. Yeah. A lot yeah. Of the time. I mean that's. I, I don't know. I mean, like, in order to have a balanced view of this, though, you'd have to have like a list of all beliefs or something, yeah. and you'd have to be like, well, this is the percentage that seem to be adaptive. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that when life is great in this kind of dream time, when economic growth is outpacing population growth, um, the pressures to form adaptive beliefs, if not literally correct beliefs, are just much weaker. There's so much more wiggle room to just to like have random false beliefs and to do things like, you know, ban nuclear power or whatever, even though it yeah. would be adaptive to do that. In the yeah. Moment. Or um, ban genetic engineering Yeah, or um, just like not have children because you don't want to. I mean, like that's probably like, from an evolutionary perspective, you can see an argument that that kind of preference is not going to last in the long run. Yeah. This is not normative, right? It's not like right. these things would be good to do, but we're just like allowed. Not Certainly to not. They would be adaptive, even if not, even not good. They would be adaptive and maybe they would be very bad. But yeah. uh, there are a lot of things that would be adaptive that yeah. don't seem to happen very much. And I thought as we have this wiggle room to do non-adaptive things because of this, 
Dreamtime dynamic. Yeah, that that's one argument you could make for worrying about a kind of Malthusian future, even if yeah. if you think that we're not in a Malthusian present. And I do, I want to say, like, I think most uh, people who talk about the modern world as if it is Malthusian are wrong. Yeah. And I right. think that perspective has done great harm, yeah. um, you know, like through such things as China's one child policy. Um, having said that, like it, the, the fact that like some, you know, like Paul Ehrlich saying like, you know, like uh, there will only be 10 men left alive on the earth in 20 minutes or like whatever crazy stuff right. he said in the 70s. Like, <laughs> like uh, the fact that like a very extreme near term uh, prediction along those lines is wrong um, does not mean that uh, like no dynamic related to that uh, can be important in the long run. Sure. Like we have examples of this kind of dynamic holding. We have examples of it not holding. Yeah. Kind and of and there's kind of, the kind of like a deep theoretical, or I mean, I don't know if it's deep, but like the, the, there is this sort of theoretical argument that um, for it. So I think it's, it should be ruled out. I mean, like you can write like a, like, you know, like a differential equation where, uh, where population yeah. will increase until like constraints uh, stop population from increasing. Okay. So zooming out again, we are talking about this idea of an evolutionary future. Also talked a bit about like why in general might these kind of competitive pressures return given that they don't seem to strongly apply to the world right now or describe the world right now. Um, okay, and now like the rest of your paper talks about possible ways that the world might avoid such an evolutionary future. So could you just say something about in general what those possible things could look like? Yeah. So basically the, the way I approach this in the paper is like, in order to avoid an evolutionary paper as uh, I frame it, you need some way of solving global collective action problems. Um, and this is uh, drawing on a, a paper by Nick Bostrom from 2006 called What is a Singleton? And um, there's basically like three ways I think that collect global collective action problems could be avoided. So one is if there's a world government. Um, another is if there's some kind of uh, multilateral coordination between different nation states mm -hmm. or, or whatever it is they have in the future, um, that that's short of a world government, but that is able to solve global collective action problems. Mm -hmm. And a third is if um, it's uh, the relevant things um, do not have global implications. So I call this like a strong defensive advantage. That's probably the the least intuitive of these three. Um, but the idea there is basically like imagine in the future you have five nation states and um, it's basically impossible for them to attack each other because that's just like the way the tech works out. Yep. Um, and so they can pretty much ignore what the other ones are doing. Are you claiming that we need the conjunction of all three or that each one is sufficient? Yeah. So each one of them is... So uh, there's this paper by J.L. Mackey. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but he defines something called an Enos condition, which is... Um, oh yeah, yeah. this is bringing back memories from undergrad <laughs> It's an insufficient but necessary part of a condition, which is itself necessary but sufficient, ne unnecessary but sufficient for the result. Um, so basically, the idea is like any one of these three steps, yeah, um, could, in principle, prevent an evolutionary future. However, it also might not. <laughs> the point that's being made is that if none of these things exist, uh -huh. if there's no world government, no strong multilateral coordination, and no strong defensive advantage, then there is no way to prevent an evolutionary future in my terms. Okay. Does that make sense? So the claim is without the disjunction of these three things being world government, multilateral, strong coordination, or defensive advantage, 
then you are claiming, surely, we should expect an evolutionary future. Yes, that is what I think. Yeah. Um, and then maybe there's more to be said about what kind of combination of the three could make us very confident that we won't get an evolutionary future. Maybe, yeah, I hadn't really thought but about that. That's not really that. the like, like, central. Yeah, but like if we have more than, like if we have a strong world government and yeah. uh, defensive advantage. Yeah, I don't know. But these are, in any case, important seeming factors for avoiding. Yeah, I mean, without any of these, I don't see how one can be avoided. And and the the payoff of that is like, if you are the sort of person who likes to make up probabilities and multiply them together, Mm -hmm. um, you can get a lower bound on the probability of an evolutionary future by multiplying through the probability that there will be no world government times the probability that there will be no strong multilateral coordination times the probability that there will be no strong defensive advantage. And of course, you have to condition on the previous stage. Okay, that makes some sense. Um, All right, let's take the first of those factors being the possibility of world governments. How could that avoid an evolutionary future? Yeah. Um, So basically, like, in order to... One way of thinking about a situation in which the world develops along uh, a path that nobody would have chosen is um, this idea of a collective action problem from economics. And you have a collective action problem when um, some behavior is has a cost and a benefit, mm-hmm. but um, the uh, collective cost or the collective benefit is different from the individual cost or the individual benefit. So one example um, could be if you have a, like a shared field uh, that different people use to graze their cattle. Yeah. Um, so if you overgraze, like you take more than your share of the, of the grass for your cattle, um, the cost to you is that they're slightly less available in the overall pool. Yeah. So if, if I'm like one of a hundred grazers. Exactly. You're, you may not see in your own future use of the field that um, yeah. uh, it's been like grazed down a bit more than it should. So I double my grazing from 1% to 2%. Yeah. All that's doing is reducing the overall amount to graze in the future by 1%. That's not yeah, a big deal you may for not me. notice that, but multiplied yeah. by everybody, that can be a yeah. big cost. Whereas yeah. other people don't realize the benefit of your cattle being 1% fatter, whereas mm-hmm. you do. For sure. Yeah. Um, and, and if you, you think about this from the perspective of the whole group, this can be really catastrophic because like maybe everybody thinks this way and there's no more grass. Yeah. Does that make sense? Everyone wants to double their cattle grazing. They just like gra- overgraze the entire field. There's nothing left to grow back. Yeah. And then and all the everyone reaches a point and... where everyone would have preferred not to arrive in that situation. Exactly. But it's still individually advantageous for every person to overgraze. For sure. I guess not to spoil the punchline, but such that... If these people could have agreed somehow to... Yeah, if they could have a cop standing there who's like, I'm going to shoot you if you overgraze yeah. your cattle. Yeah. Um, I mean, that maybe that's a little extreme, but like, I'll give you a fine. <laughs> um, sure. Um, then uh, that would be better for everyone. Yep. Yep. And a world government can can have that function. And I mean, like, so I'm not, I'm not advocating for world government or anything like that, but just like, if we have some global collective action problems right now, um, like an obviously... Uh, prominent example is um global warming or or like the the hole in the ozone layer from uh, chlorofluorocarbons in the you know in the late 20th century um and uh what happened there is like a bunch of countries got together and made a treaty uh, to restrict the production of chlorofluorocarbons mm-hmm. um but if there had been a world government it could have 
been much easier to do that. And it probably like would have had a higher probability of success because, um, it, it, you know, it's, it's like a, a lot of faff to like sign a treaty and then countries might not follow it. Yep. Whereas if there's a world government, yep. like it would just be a matter of domestic environmental regulation. For sure. Which yep. almost every country does with some success. Yeah. Is there a reason to think that world government is at all possible, given that like there's nothing outside all the countries in the world right now? Like, how do you bootstrap this thing into existence? But how would it form? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I guess like to back up a little bit, um, we can ask, do current trends seem to favor a world government? And then we can uh -huh. also ask, sure. how would a world government form? Yeah. Um, and in terms of current trends, I think you can argue this one either way. So like, here's a very basic fact. There's no world government right now. Mm, interesting. And there has never been anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, the size of nation states has gotten much bigger over the past thousand years or whatever, 2000 years, you know, since we were in like tribes going around in forests. Yep. Um, and, um, you know, we now have uh, multilateral institutions like the United Nations that did not exist 100 years ago. Um, and, and not just the United Nations, but like all kinds of um, things regulating the Internet, uh, forests, chlorofluorocarbons, um, CO2, although that one's, you know, kind of difficult, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons. So there's lots of global governance that happens, although there's no world government. And you might think this reflects a kind of trend in that direction. And even more abstractly, you might say like, oh, well, you know, at first there were single-celled organisms, there were multi-celled mm -hmm. organisms, mm -hmm. and then there were, you know, organisms with brains, and then there were like social animals like ants or chimpanzees, and then there were humans with tribes and the nation states, and now like this integrated global civilization, you might sort yeah. of like kind of draw a line and be like, oh, sure. look, there's a world government at the end. Yeah. Um, so I think like, you know, in terms of trend extrapolation, you can argue this way either way, basically. Um, then in terms of mechanisms, how would it actually come about? Um, a natural way to divide that is between a voluntary formation and an involuntary formation. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine like gradually over time, something like the UN um, becoming stronger and stronger to the yeah. point where it can function like a government. And, and by that, I basically mean that it can use uh, force. Like states just incrementally seed um, yeah. coercive force or something. Yeah, and, and just to reiterate, I'm not saying this is a good idea or a bad idea. It's just a possibility yeah, for in sure. the future. Just out of interest, is does this describe ever how nation states form? Like you have this kind of coordination that gets increasingly strong and then it becomes de facto government? Yeah, I mean, I think you could, like, make this argument about the U.S. So, like, the U.S. has had two constitutions. Um, so, right after the revolution, there were the Articles of Confederation, but people felt, for various reasons, that was too weak, and that was eventually replaced with the federal constitution. And the federal constitution, um, some scholars have argued, has gone through several different phases, and um, generally speaking, each phase is stronger than the prior phase. So, like, in between the founding and um, the Civil War, there was this kind of open legal question, can states secede? Um, huh. Turns out, no, they cannot. That's illegal. Uh, <laughs> and, and the federal government became stronger in various ways after the Civil War. And then also in the 1930s, um, the federal government sort of arrogated a lot of like um, regulatory powers that it had not had previously to itself um, and, and just like became a much larger part of the mm -hmm. U.S. economy. Um, um, so, and, and none of this was like, um, I guess the, so the civil war obviously was violent, but like the transition from the articles of confederation to the, um, 
to the federal constitution and the transition from the pre-New Deal order to the post-New Deal order, this was kind of peaceful and by consensus. So those are examples, or those are illustrative of this, like how states form vol voluntarily, and this might apply to um, world government. Yeah. Um, cool. And then any other ways that world government might form? Yeah. So, so a big one um, would be world conquest. Um, and uh, you can divide that further into two kind of paths. Uh, so one would be if uh, through kind of uneven growth, like one country just become or one country or probably more realistically, like one alliance yeah. becomes so much richer than the rest of the world. It's, it's relatively easy for them to conquer the rest okay. of the world. Yep. And um, another path would be um, just changes in the offense defense balance that uh, radically change power between countries without um, kind of broad based economic, without like changing their ability to make refrigerators and stuff. Okay. Can you say more about what that would look like? Yeah. Okay. So, like, if, if it became possible to like reliably block nuclear missiles for one yeah. country, yeah, that would really change. So tilting the balance, in particular, yeah. in the in favor of offense. Yeah, that would make um, countries that are so like. Why does North Korea still exist? Like, North Korea is something like one twentieth as rich yep. as South Korea, um, but North Korea has nukes now, and before that, they had like tons of artillery pointed right at Seoul, and so. Even if South Korea could theoretically like win a war against North Korea, and the war is technically speaking ongoing, um, um, that's just not worth it to them to get like their capital city where fifty percent of their population is like completely shelled. Mm -hmm. um, but if they, you know, like if they invented force fields that could block artillery shells, then that would be easier. Yep. Um, and and then you can also you sort of this, I think like more important with this consideration is that it can kind of be a blocker to uneven growth acceleration resulting in world conquest. Um, mm -hmm. So to, I see. Yeah, they're related. Go back to the uneven growth one. Um, like the British, you know, the UK was like one percent of world GDP prior to the Industrial Revolution, and it was not very important politically. But after the Industrial Revolution, it was fifteen percent of world GDP, and um, like the biggest empire the world had ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, and these things are probably related to each other. And um, you might think so the US and China right now are both about 15% of world GDP. And you might think that um, if there's some new technological revolution um, that is similar to the Industrial Revolution that speeds up growth locally in some places, um, just as the Industrial Revolution did, then one of those countries will be like 95% of world GDP and will basically be a world government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this makes sense. And then in addition, if this offense defense balance, tilts in favor of offense that would make this yeah, kind of that conquest would make that easier like but if it tilts in favor of defense which is kind of the situation right now it would make sure. it much harder so like if you know like the u.s is you know the u.s right now is way richer than russia but say the u.s is like a thousand times richer than russia if it's still the case that russia has thousands of nuclear missiles mm -hmm. it may not be a good idea to attack russia yep um uh so the offense defense thing is a reason we shouldn't just reason from like differences in overall ability to produce stuff to differences in power. Okay, got it. That makes sense. Okay, so those are like roughly, you know, two and a half ways or something um, that world government might form. Um, yeah, and then maybe you could just say a bit more about like how and why this avoids an evolutionary future. Just like what could this look like? Yeah, so you could have a world government that forms in whatever way and then like people, okay, let's say like People want to colonize space. Um, and then it could make rules about like how much, you know, it could sort of assign property rights in space. Yep. 
Um, and it could say like, you're allowed to take this much of space, you know, like, uh, if you don't pay your taxes, we're going to come take it away and like make all kinds of rules about that. So it wouldn't be this kind of process where whoever, um, is most willing to give other things up in order to colonize space will end up in control of space. Yep. Got it. And I thought there is one obvious way to make property rights meaningful is to have some coercive governing force, which applies to both or all the relevant actors. I mean, that does seem to be the main way that property rights work in our world. Indeed. Um, I, I guess there are some other ideas that people have. Um, yeah. And, and just to say something else about the space thing, like it's not automatically the case, just if there's a world government on earth that that can control space. So it further has to be able to police space in some mm -hmm. way. And that um, that's its own can of worms. And I don't have a lot of insight into how that would work. Yeah. I guess like it's global governance rather than Earth yeah. governance, right? That because is why I use that. Care about everything. Yep. Cool. Um, cool. Okay. So this is like one general way we might avoid avoid an evolutionary future. Again, not talking normatively about whether this would be good, but it's like a thing that could happen. Um, the second fact you mentioned had something to do with like strong kinds of multilateral coordination. Could you say more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So um, to zoom way out, like. There was this paper that probably everybody has heard of called The Tragedy of the Commons by Garrett Hardin, where um, this is where the grazing analogy comes from. And he says, like, here's the problem. The only solutions are either a government that enforces property rights or a government that enforces other kinds of rules about how things can be used. Mm -hmm. um, and Eleanor Ostrom, who won a PhD, or who, yeah, who, was, who was an economist and who won the Nobel Prize in economics, um, Yep. basically pointed out that this is not this does not accurately describe how uh, commons have functioned historically yep um and that there's a third option which is that the users of a resource can um collaboratively enforce rules about how that resource is used without there being any entity with a monopoly on the legitimate use of force so just to like give some detail there garrett hardin is suggesting that there is like only two ways to avoid this one is a thing that we're roughly just talking about, which is that you assign property rights and that's enforced by some external entity with monopoly of force. Then you said there's some like second option. Yeah, I mean, was option? for our purposes, these are the same thing, but you could also have like publicly enforced use regulations that are not based on property. So it could be like everyone gets to graze for 10 minutes as opposed to like you divide up the commons into private plots. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, nice. Um, but in, it, I guess the thing that these two options have in common is that they involve this like external force. Yeah, and that's kind of, that's very much Hardin's point. Yeah, and then along comes Eleanor Ostrom. She's like, hang on, why don't we just actually look to examples in the world where, you know, groups have faced some kind of collective action problem. Right. How have they resolved them? Well, often they successfully resolve them without... Yeah, I mean, so there are there are commons of this kind in Japan and Switzerland that have um, lasted for hundreds of years and not been overgrazed and do not rely on any kind of like police power of the state to operate. Yep. Um, and so one example that she gives that I really like um, is about this, this uh, fishing village in Turkey called Alanya, where um, they needed to, you know, like if people took too many fish, that would be bad for the group. Mm -hmm. uh, so they needed to establish regulations of some kind on that. And the system they came up with was they made a list of everybody who was authorized to fish mm -hmm. in that village. And then uh, they divided the village, the, the fishing area into zones, numbered zones. And then they had everybody move over one zone every day. Mm -hmm. um, and um, this uh, prevented kind of overuse. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and also it had the virtue of being like um easily enforceable because um like if someone is in your zone, that's a big problem for you. Yep. Um and apparently this significantly reduced the overfishing in Alanya and it didn't require um any kind of top-down authority mm-hmm. per se. Um so you could imagine something like that happening um, you know, over the most important issues in the future, like how we divide up space or what kind of digital minds can people make or like what kind of weapon systems are allowed? Yeah. What kind of environmental damage is allowed? Things and like the that. distinction here is that, so you, you get this kind of agreement about what kinds of futures are preferred or not. Um, but then they're successfully enforced just through like cooperation and coordination, just like mutually by the actors that already exist. Exactly. Without, without forming some creating new, some yeah. new overwhelmingly powerful actor that will crush anybody who breaks the rules. Yeah. Good. All right. So when we were talking about world governments, we were, or you had mentioned trends that might point in the direction of this being more or less likely. Is there some similar trend we can look to to see whether this seems feasible? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. So one thing you could point to is that inter- there are like some international coordination successes, like removing CFCs from industrial products. Yeah. Also, uh, uh, nuclear nonproliferation has been somewhat successful, but um obviously leave something to be desired. Yeah. Uh, I guess more successful than people expected in the 60s when the yeah, regime right. was coming yeah. into place. Um, but, but yeah, certainly leave something to be desired. Um, um, I guess something that's relatively new that might be a, a positive, uh, or a, not necessarily positive, but a, a sign that multilateral coordination um, is becoming more feasible over time is a lot of uh, trade between strangers happens on the internet based mm. on um, kind of reputation systems mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as opposed to right. like with, you know, if you're like buying something on eBay from somebody in Indonesia, um, you may not be super confident the Indonesian police will arrest this person if they rip mm-hmm. you off, but the eBay reputation system um, might allow you to have confidence that they won't rip you off. Right. And this is distinctively enabled by this technology, the internet, plus these reputation systems. Indeed. And they just unlock a bunch of trades which wouldn't have happened otherwise yes it seems good for anticipating more kinds of coordination yeah and i mean just the, the way the internet itself works um yeah. is, is not like yeah it's kind of crazy of when you internet think about police it. like yeah the, yeah the, the way the protocols are structured basically incentivizes cooperation. just like one massive agreement that just like holds itself together yeah um like un- i was reading a lot about undersea cables recently right and oh, there's cool. a relatively yeah, small cool. number of cables that just connects the entire world together but the incentives work out like Everyone wants these things. So, to like, these are work. the ones that they have those videos of the sharks trying to eat them. I haven't seen these videos, but I think they're the same cables. Yeah, <laughs> turns out like a ton of internet just runs under Egypt, um, like going into the Indian Ocean, or yeah, wow, because okay. it just like connects to the Mediterranean. Very cool. Yeah, <laughs> many more facts available about. <laughs> okay, these are some like general trends, general reasons to expect this kind of strong global coordination to be possible. Uh, or but at also, least reasons you might think it's not crazy. Okay, yeah. Um, I guess also worth asking what this could actually look like, what the mechanisms could actually be. Yeah, how something like that could come about. Sure. Um, so I, I kind of divide it into two categories. Um, so the first category is that um, there could be reasons that cooperation with unshared preferences becomes easier, uh, having to do with future technology. And it could also separately be the case that um, preferences become more widely shared, so people just become more intrinsically motivated to cooperate. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. to the first one first, um, uh, a lot of what's going into this section of the paper is from uh, an international relations paper by James Fearon called Rationalist Explanations for War. And um, this is a like, really great paper, maybe like one of the best social science papers that I'm aware of. And um, he he makes this point, which is an old point, that like war is intrinsically negative sum. So um, like with the current war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, whoever wins will have like spent a huge amount of money. Sure. It's like tens of thousands yeah. or hundreds of thousands of their people will be dead. A bunch of their stuff will be destroyed. Um, yeah. And it would have been better for that side if they could just skip all the fighting and go straight to the part where mm. they get whatever it is that they get when yeah. they win. So like basically always before a potential war, there is some alternative like agreement that if both parties could commit to ahead of time, if both, if both parties be knew by both what parties, would happen in the war right. and could commit to the agreement, then that would yeah. always be better than yeah. the war. It's like, let's get to the same same ending point just without everyone dying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Why um, doesn't this happen all the time? <laughs> why doesn't this happen all the time? So one, one, there's a couple of reasons that are out of scope for Fear and Paper. So one is irrational leaders who may not think this way. Yeah, just like hot-headed, yeah, just like, yeah, screw them. Hot-headed for sure, um, and that's been a problem in a lot of wars, but also just like they don't really know what's going to happen. So like with World War I, um, it's not like um, the fact that the Russian foreign minister Zazanov was like, oh yeah, this will mean the destruction of our dynasty and like however million of our people will die and like it will be this huge catastrophe, but we should do it anyway. Um just because we're so mad at Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they had no idea what was going to happen. And if they had known, um, if they had been more rational in that sense, uh, they probably would not have gotten involved. But not being like omniscient, like not knowing exactly how things pan out doesn't strike me as an example of yeah. irrationality. I mean, but like if they had had like maybe a more uh, uh, better distribution over possible sure. outcomes. Or like in particular, if um, both or more actors before a potential war had like a shared... Yeah. So that's that's one big problem. That's that's what Fearon calls um, asymmetric information. So like, if getting away from World War One, but like the U.S. right now has uh, some number of nuclear weapons that are like that have certain technical properties that are stored in a variety of places around the world. Yeah, um, the U.S. might like its adversaries to know that it has the power to do certain things with its nuclear weapons. However, it really does not want to allow its adversaries the unrestricted ability to come inspect its nuclear weapons and know where they are and what they're doing at all times. That would be very damaging. Um, And it may be difficult to get the first kind of knowledge without the second kind of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like another example, like if the U.S. allowed Russia to install microphones in the Pentagon, um, that would probably contribute to trust between the U.S. and Russia. On the yeah. other hand, it would also make the United States much weaker, basically. Um, so there can be a trade-off between releasing information that's relevant for bargaining purposes and um, um, retaining your own bargaining position. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's possible that this will change in the future. So, like, if there were a way to verify exactly how many nuclear weapons you have with what properties without allowing inspectors to come check them out, um, yep. that would be helpful for this purpose. Yeah. And um, it might be possible to use various techniques um, 
to release all and only the bargaining relevant information. Mm-hmm. So the worry is that if you have disagreement over something like the odds of success in a potential war, that can increase the likelihood of, of a war. And you're saying it would be great if there was some way to reach agreement and like you know common knowledge of the odds each side assigns to winning. Currently, that might be infeasible because sharing the relevant kinds of information could also reduce your odds because you're relying on this kind of secrecy. Right. Maybe in future, through some technological means, there will be ways to reach agreement on the odds of winning. Because it might be possible to credibly release only very specific information that's relevant to bargaining as opposed to a ton of information that can be exploited for strategic advantage. And this is like one general reason to expect um, coordination in place of something like war. Yeah. Cool. And I mean, it doesn't also, it doesn't have to be purely technological. Like if there were like just highly trusted uh, mediators. So like the Red Cross Mm -hmm. does not, most countries will allow the Red Cross to operate in their territory during a war. And that's because the Red Cross is seen as credibly neutral between different sides. Like the Red Cross is not spying on you and telling the United States what you're doing. If there were some kind of like international college of weapons inspectors Mm -hmm. that was trusted in the same way the Red Cross is, that could have a similarly beneficial effect. I see. Yep. So I guess the IAEA is a bit like this, but not really trusted by I think not really trusted at all. Yeah. Um, And if somehow they became like incredibly trustworthy and just everyone were like bought in. Exactly. I mean, so like something Robin Hanson talks about is like if there was like a school of like neutral diplomats that you would go Uh to at a young age and like everyone could look at the curriculum and stuff. Um, maybe that would be helpful in yeah. this sense. Interesting. Anything else you want to say about this rationalist explanations for war? Yeah. So, so maybe even more important than asymmetric information is commitment problems. Mm-hmm. So this has come up a lot in the Ukraine war, where like some people have suggested, like, oh, well, like as a compromise, maybe Ukraine should recognize Russian control over Crimea or something like that. And then the rebuttal is always, well, who's to say they won't invade again in ten mm-hmm. years and try to get more? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a reason from this perspective for continuing the war. Because you have no guarantee that they can't do that, so you need to reduce them to a position where you know they can't do sure. that. Sure. Yep. Um, the the way this kind of thing is is resolved in business is like you make contracts that are then enforced by a third party. Yeah. yeah right. Right. Um, so like, if I promise to like deliver like a thousand trucks to you tomorrow and I don't do it, you can sue me for for like damages for failing to yep. adhere to my end of the contract. Yep. And in general, if you're an actor smaller than a nation state, it's probably the the case that there's some enforcing entity that's yeah. bigger than both of you. So. Yeah. But like, you know, like there's no meaningful way that like Ukraine can sue Russia for damages commensurate sure. with starting another war. Yeah. Um, however, uh, there might be, there might be new commitment devices available in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, like one might be like escrowing funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so if one, two countries are trying to make a deal with each other, um, they might just put a ton of money in surety under some like neutral authority that will confiscate the money if they don't abide by the terms of the deal. Yep. Um, there's a paper uh, proposing this for environmental treaties. Um, it's Hovi et al. Um, and um, uh, you could argue that like some similar things have worked out in the past. So yeah. um, um, after the Iranian revolution, um, there were tons of claims of so the re- relations between the United States and the Islamic Republic of Iran totally broke down. Um, tons of people had claims against, uh, one, like tons of Iranians had claims against the U.S. Tons of uh, Americans had claims against Iran. 
And um, the two countries formed a kind of joint commission to settle these claims. And they settled them out of a pool of like frozen Iranian assets in U.S. banks. Um, And this seems to have worked pretty well. They worked through like, I mean, like 90 plus percent of the claims. Um, So you could imagine things like this happening in the future. Um, More speculatively, um, it might be possible, um, for instance, for countries to like collaborate on engineering projects that have the effect of um, enforcing some type of deal. Um, so like, you know, to take a kind of silly example, like if I want to prove that like, I won't be late for meetings anymore Mm -hmm. and I build a robot that will come stab me 50 times Mm -hmm. if I'm ever late for a Mm -hmm. meeting again, um, then I would probably be on time. And this is where like future technology could be relevant. Indeed. Because like just simple escrow seems like a thing we can do right now. Escrow is something we could do right now. And like, maybe we should really be pushing that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, in, in the future, it might be possible to get something a bit more, um, um, uh, effective than yeah, 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 and then like you know something, something blockchain. I guess is a yeah. So blockchain is the other side of this. Um, yeah, you you could. I mean, that's more. I I guess I see that as like on the escrow side. Like yeah, the issue one of one issue with escrow is like, what if someone steals the money, right? Um, right, right. And and who are who are two countries going to trust? Uh uh-huh. Intermediate between them. Um, and so you might say like, oh, well, you can like make a DAO, and then the DAO will hold the money, and then like you know, like the Dow will have an ML system that scrapes the news to see if Russian troops are in Ukraine or something. Um, that's one possibility. Mm-hmm. But going beyond escrow, um, you might basically collaboratively build robots to enforce a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been called a treaty bot in some futurist literature. Um, I think this is like an interesting idea. I do think people in general are kind of too... Um, there's something a bit hasty sometimes about discussions of how like advanced AI will enable really strong coordination. Yeah, just to be clear, like one thought here is that um, maybe it's possible or even easy to build like software systems with really like transparent preferences so we can yeah. both inspect and agree that they're yeah not um, being sneaky. Whereas with humans, you can't really do this. Yeah, although like if we're you know if we're talking about like future technology, like why not brain scans or something? Yeah. Um, I think, um, yeah, so people do have this view that AIs will cooperate really well with each other. Insofar as I understand that, um, it it seems something like, yeah, you can read an AI's brain and you can also modify it to lock in commitments. Mm-hmm. Um, so like you could just like, if you could read the code, then you could write in the code, like it will never do X, Y, Z. And then that's the code. So it's going to follow that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think these are the big reasons why people think advanced AI will enable more coordination. A lot of people do think mm-hmm. that. Um, I guess like some some concerns about this. So um, are you familiar with the underhanded C contest? Tell me more. Yeah. So um, there used to be this contest for C programmers where um, they would get a, a prompt with kind of two layers. So the first layer is some innocuous task, like, uh, you know, collecting votes on something. And the second layer is a specific way in which your code has to undermine the task and it has to also pass a visual inspection by expert judges. As in like someone scrolling through the code. Someone reads the code and says, this looks legit. Like you can't like very blatantly undermine the task. You have to do it in a way that someone who knows C won't notice. Um, And so in the 2015 contest, they, um, the the task which was given to them by the Nuclear Threat Initiative, interestingly enough, was to take uh, sort of data reflecting an object being dismantled and say, is this or is it not a nuclear weapon? Hmm. Um, 
and people found you know different ways of and the that was the that was the ostensible task and the sneaky task was uh get a program that will basically always say yes so the country can yeah. pretend they're dismantling nuclear yeah, weapons right, right. but they're not um but they're just dismantling something else um and this allows them to keep a larger uh stockpile of nuclear weapons than they've uh, said they will um and people found you know various ways of uh writing code that looked legit but that had this property mm -hmm. um and you might be concerned that like if people in you know in the year 2700 are trying to build robots to enforce um a, a deal uh this kind of problem might come up again yep. yep um so the next step in the dialectic here is people say okay well c is kind of like famously a language where you can get away with all kinds of bad behavior and if you had a a formally verifiable programming language that would seriously constrain uh, this kind of behavior. Yeah, what's a formally verifiable language? Okay, so I, I'm not an expert <laughs> on this, but my understanding is it's a language where you can have some kind of proof or at least like a very clear argument that the program does what it says it's going to do yep. and is not executing some kind of malicious code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's the that's something that people propose. And, and it is true that there has been a sort of gradual trend in the direction of doing more things in a firmly verifiable way. Um, How so? Um, like, the, these languages, since they've been invented, are used for more applications and are less of a purely kind of academic thing. Like, some apps are built on Rust now, is my understanding. How is that an argument that we're trending towards more formally verifiable software? I might have suspected it's the opposite, actually. Like, Wait, that it's used less? There's just this increasingly complicated hierarchy of like higher level languages becomes increasingly inscrutable what's really going on. Sure, yeah. But I mean, if people actually do use formally verified, I mean, as I said, I'm not an yeah. expert on this, but <laughs> if people actually <laughs> are. So like, you know, th there was a time before there were any formally verifiable mm. languages. Now, and then there was a time when there were some and they were not used for anything. Okay, and like now there's join a, those two dots and sure, the line goes up. And now there's a time when they're used for some purposes. Okay, okay, yeah, <laughs> fine. Um, that's the argument anyway. I feel like we should kind of zoom out again. The yeah. basic point is you might think in the future, the ability to do collaborative engineering projects between adversaries will remove commitment problems. Yep. Um, however, there are difficulties with uh, those projects now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might continue to be difficulties in the future. And some people think like AGI will solve those difficulties, but I think, um, I, I'm not personally convinced of that yet, although I think it's possible. Okay, so zooming out, we're a bit in the weeds there, but the context is this question of whether technology in the future um, may be involving like AI agents that can like make treaties with one another or something um, could, enable stronger kinds of coordination and in particular commitments where currently it's often hard for like things at the level of nations to make credible commitments to one another um and yeah what's the like how do you sum this up yeah the way i would sum it up is like we know that human beings minds are hard to read and it's hard for them to absolutely lock in a commitment to do something mm -hmm. uh in a way that's verifiable to others we don't know how ais in the far future will be so it's more likely that ais will be able to do those things than humans okay that's because the character <laughs> of ais is unknown right yes. um the fact that we don't know how things will be is a reason for hope 
Um, yeah, and also a further argument you could make is like the ability to make commitments is useful. So if this can be had at, at low cost, you might expect people to do it. Yeah, okay, great. That makes sense. So I guess zooming out even more, right? Like the conversation here is about ways in which strong kinds of like multilateral coordination could come about, just like what are the mechanisms? And we were talking about this like rationalist explanations for war framing, ways that it could be easier to commit to agreements in the future. Um, yeah, curious if there are other ways that global coordination could come about. You mentioned something about preferences. Yeah, so um, basically the thought there is like, in a collective action problem, the assumption is you only care about your own welfare, so you're willing to impose costs on the group that exceed private benefits mm -hmm. because you don't care about costs to the group. If you had a situation where everybody cared just as much about the other users of the field as about mm -hmm. themselves, there's no collective action problem. Yeah, like in the extreme, if we all had literally the same set of preferences, like yeah. we all just care about the world being different in exactly the same way. Yeah, exactly. Then we just work together. Exactly. Um, and you might, there are some arguments that, um, one, uh, selfish preferences will be less in conflict with each other in the future. Mm -hmm. And two, non-selfish preferences might converge. And, um, all these arguments sort of point in the direction of greater coordination in the future. Okay, cool. Let's take them in turn. So there's this point that selfish preferences may conflict less. Okay. Why is that? Uh, the idea, so like, um, this is something that, um, you know, Eric Drexler and uh, Leopold Aschenbrenner have uh, written about in different ways. My own thinking about it is is largely drawn from some unpublished papers by Ben Garfinkel, mm -hmm. um, which will eventually come out. Um, so imagine there are two people in the world and they have equal wealth. Um, uh, one could attack the other and have a 60% chance of killing him and taking his money and a 40% chance of getting killed, which we can think of as his wealth going to zero. Mm -hmm. um, that seems a lot more likely if they each have $1,000. And so the benefit would be going to 2,000. As it is much more likely that they would choose yeah, to, to fight yep. than if uh, they each have a billion dollars mm -hmm. um, because the utility that you get from money is famously diminishing. And um, like, if you just imagine the lifestyle of somebody who goes from having $1,000 is having $2,000. Yeah. It might be something like they have enough food. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, you go from like a billion to 2 billion, um, like the lifestyle difference is much smaller. The 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 happiness you gain sure. is less. And I guess like making it more abstract. So one extreme version is if your utility with money just totally levels off after a certain point. So maybe beyond, you know, my wealth, beyond like a million dollars, I just literally do not care about getting more money. In that case, if if Mark and Bob or whatever both had, <laughs> I can't remember, both had a billion dollars, they're both going to be literally indifferent about getting any more money. Yeah, uh, no reason. For that There's no reason. Exactly. Um, if their utility with money is something like logarithmic, then they get you know equal increments with doublings. Yeah, which means they'll get a smaller proportional increase in their utility the richer they are. Yeah. So that's also, I guess it depends on the numbers in that I case. Mean, but, but, but also if you take into account the risk that you might die, if you attack someone, that becomes much less attractive. Right, so the, just the proposition becomes less and less attractive yeah. the worth you get, is the point. Yeah, nice. that's exactly the idea. And, and, and so you might, so like, um, you might see this as an uh, argument that as the world gets richer in per capita terms, mm -hmm. 
uh, conflict becomes less likely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this makes sense. I guess also Leopold makes this point. People might care more about reducing risks to themselves. I guess it's kind of the same point. Yeah, because you, because what you lose is worse, is more to lose. And so like you can think about this also in terms of some historical analogies. So like there used to be like tons of pirates mm -hmm. where they would like go around and have a serious risk of death to maybe steal some gold. Right. This is much less common now. <laughs> I haven't seen a pirate in ages. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there are Somali pirates, but like it's kind of, right, that's like the poorest, one of the poorest yeah, countries right, in the world. Right, right. And part of it is probably they don't have like a Coast Guard and so on, but also probably like in most other countries, people have like better things to do mm -hmm. than become pirates. Mm -hmm. Yep. And this is like also just a general explanation about why rich countries tend not to go to war, is well, you just have so much to lose. Well, power, so they might go to war in a case where there's no chance they will lose. Mm -hmm. Like the United States invading Iraq. Mm -hmm. like there was really no risk mm -hmm. that Iraq would roll tanks down the streets of Washington. Um, but yeah, they they might be much less likely to go to war in a way that could create a massive war. Yeah. Okay. Like where there is just like a reasonable chance of losing. Yeah. Then you're much more sensitive to that that chance, the wealthier you are. Supplies to people, supplies to countries. This is a reason to expect that if the world gets richer on the whole, they have one reason to be more averse to war. Cool. Yeah. Anything else on this general bucket of like preferences could change in a way that makes coordination easy? Yeah. So um, another thing is like a lot of things that seem like different preferences are arguably the result of differences of opinion um, about a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And um, if, if matters of fact come to be more widely known in the mm -hmm. future, um, this might be less of a problem. Mm -hmm. Do you have so, an example of mine? Yeah. Um, there's this, uh, yeah, there's this paper from 1952 uh, by Bernard Berelson called Demo Democratic Theory and Public Opinion. And he basically makes the point that like in most policy disputes, um, val different values are not at stake. So like if people have different ideas about the appropriate um, level of tax. Um it's not typically the case that like they disagree. This is just uh, like a bedrock <laughs> fundamental belief. That, yeah, like, that, people should no, be it's like, no, it should like, be fifty-one percent. Yeah, yeah. Like that, I don't care what the you know, though the heavens may fall. Like, um, it's 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 like probably they have a lot of the time. It's because they have different ideas about like what the effect on employment will be sure. on real wage growth, on inflation, things like that. Yeah. And, and if you poll people are, and you're like, um, is employment good or bad? Uh, they will say it's good. And, and it's not like really, it doesn't differ too much by sure. political affiliation is my understanding. Um, um, yeah. And so maybe like a more, uh, I guess like, so conflicts about that kind of thing. So like policy conflicts, you're saying tend to have like a big empirical component. And as long as we just learn more about the effects of policies. Yeah. And it does seem like over time, uh, more tends to be known as a broad sure. fact. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, like it can go into reverse, obviously. Like they they apparently forgot how to do astronomy during the European Dark Ages. Uh -huh. um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, that seems to be the general trend and that might cause us to expect there to be less conflict mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah. Um, and then um, a final thing is like, so there are normative disagreements in the world. Yep. Um, but if it is the case that there are like normative facts in some sense that can be learned, we might think that as part of the process of more facts being learned over time, uh, people will learn these normative facts and um, they will internalize them 
and then people will agree on, on what is right. Yeah. So this is like applying to disagreements that are kind of like, we're disagreeing about what's all things considered best rather than just like, we're both selfish. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I think that's like, you know, that, that does happen. Um, that kind of disagreement. I guess I'm skeptical that this will actually like happen in real life. But um, if you do think that like there are normative facts, um, yeah, you might think people will eventually converge on them. So like presumably you think like there are physical facts mm -hmm. and people will eventually converge on mm -hmm. those. Um, and so if you think that normativity is, is like physics in that sense, uh, you might also expect people will converge on normative facts. And a consequence of that would be, per the earlier argument about collective action problems, there will be more cooperation in the future. Yeah. And I guess this is a nice way of carving up different reasons to expect coordination, but they're kind of blurry, right? So I'm thinking about uh, ethical views are like are informed by beliefs about souls or something. Yeah, that's to some extent this is like empirical or different kind of, religions like right. um, have different ethical ideas and um also have like different numbers of gods and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, that's a good point. These things are not sharply separated. Yeah. Especially if you think that like especially if there are normative facts like like all facts are kind of entangled in all other facts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So you could just, from a certain perspective, you're like, just like as you straighten out the web of belief, people will come to agree more about what should happen. What's that Quine paper? Well, he has a paper uh, called the Web of Belief. And there's this analytic synthetic distinction. Oh, that that one I I don't I oh no that's a book called the Web of Belief by Quine. Two dogmas Quine. of empiricism. Yeah, I haven't Great. read that. I don't know what it says. <laughs> it says what you're saying. Okay. What saying. <laughs> um, good. We're totally not going down that rabbit hole, but uh, cool. In my notes, I have a distinction between realist and subjectivist kinds of convergence on moral. Yeah, this facts. is, is that this a, is a very uh, fine distinction. But the idea is basically like you know you could think that like there are normative facts that exist in a mind independent way, just like there are presumably physical facts that exist in a mind independent way, or you could just think like. Look, like you take the human mind, you apply the correct idealization procedure, you output the correct answer, and yeah. you take everybody's mind, and, this, and there's only one right idealization procedure, and you're going to get the right, the same answer for everybody. So, like, it doesn't really, um, you can't have this view that there will be convergence on what's right in the future without um, uh, normative realism or moral realism per se. Like you could be a subjectivist and just think I that see. there's this like one to one function. Doesn't need to be this mysterious, or I guess a many to one special. Like kind, every mind, yeah. one output. Yeah, for sure. And a lot of like, I want to say that a lot of moral thought looks a bit like figuring out which ideas are confused or not. And it's kind of I don't know. I don't know how yeah, to categorize like, that. But people might. I mean, uh, my own uh, uh, reservations about this is it's like, why would there just be one idealization mm. procedure? And then, like, would it really be the case that everybody would everybody would get the same answer? I don't know. It yeah. seems kind of weird. Like, well, here's an example I have in mind. Sure. Um, let's say roughly twenty years ago, there was lots of disagreement in the academy, like in philosophy, about what kind of view about population ethics was correct. And so there were like lots of views that were kind of just on the table that people were throwing around. And like, you can imagine this being actually a kind of action relevant question, at least in the long run. Yeah. And then, like, since then, I want to say that there's been some convergence on which views 
cold water and which turn out to be confused or really hard to get to work once you just think hard about it. And I don't know whether that's like an example of realist convergence or subjectivist convergence, but it's an example of some kind of convergence towards an action relevant yeah. and also like, you know, normative. I mean, if you if you just like lay out like these are the bullets you have to bite in a really clear way, and people are like, oh, well, I mean, that's stupid. But then, yeah, like maybe yeah. it's convergence towards agreeing that like the options face is this, yeah. where the options become fewer or, or and like, like more or, or crisply like defined. Convergence on like a certain way of looking at the dialectic, and it's like when you think about it that way, then it becomes pretty obvious that you should accept the repugnant conclusion or, mm. or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe, but like, I mean, that, so it's really interesting you say that because that was not my impression about population ethics, although I, huh. I think you probably know maybe a lot I'm more about it than I do. But... Um, but yeah, it seems like, like, isn't it the case that people have invented all these kind of like weird high-tech views in the last couple of years? My, again, I'm like not an expert either. My impression is that discussion around like, the original repugnant conclusion. It's now harder to like hold simple, plausible sounding, like a range of plausible sounding views. Okay. Like I think people have been driven to just accept a bunch of impossibility. Like averageism is less popular. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. And this is, this happens in general in philosophy, right? Like occasionally people do just roughly but agree. It could on also question. just be for like sociological reasons, don't you think? That seems extremely pessimistic to describe like all of philosophy yeah probably not all describes but... a lot of philosophy <laughs> uh, i mean i guess like with the philosophy of i don't know um I, there was some discussion of this with like david chalmers he had a, some some document that said mm -hmm. like yeah there's progress in philosophy because like for instance like people don't believe in god as much anymore mm -hmm. it's like is that really about philosophy like is that i mean yeah i mean just minimally right like i take it that it's possible for me and probably I do just have a bunch of beliefs which like seem plausible, but when I think about them more, turn out to be confused, and then I reject them. And like this can happen at a group level. That's People true. People think about a bunch of beliefs. That's true. And, that that does seem pretty defensible. Um, which looks a bit less like discovering moral truths and more just like getting clear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe that would be the kind of what the subjectivist would say. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Um, what we're talking about <laughs> <laughs> convergence in preferences. Um, and I guess in particular, like, you know, normative preferences. Anything else you want to say about this general idea of preferences converting? Um, well, you had this interesting point where um, if preferences are more diverse, that could in its own way kind of enable cooperation. I was imagining something like if we encountered some, you know, alien civilization with just totally alien preferences, like they really care about this random like chemical compound that we have no use for on Earth. And they really care about making like patterns in the sky in um some um frequency of light that we can't see or whatever um and they don't especially care about what we do with stuff on earth then we don't really have much reason to for conflict because we can just like happily get along with our own things and yeah we don't want what you want and vice versa like if they care about stuff we just have no interest in yeah and so, like, maybe if the entire universe gets full and we just wanted to eke out an extra bit of universe, then yeah. no reason for conflict at that point. But um, I guess that does seem like maybe a... I mean, it seems like this thing you're describing does happen in real life all the time. Um, and uh, that probably is a sign that we shouldn't say, oh, well, in the future, that will never happen anymore. Um, yeah. So I think it's a good point, and it's not one that I address. I don't know how to make this precise, but it does feel like there's some kind of 
you know, upside down U-curve or something here, right? Like where if you and I just totally agree on what we want the world to look like, then we're not going to conflict. We're just going to work together. Yeah. If we totally just like care about completely orthogonal things, um, like maybe my relationship to like what a penguin cares about or something, then well, we I also mean, just don't kind have of famously we are messing things <laughs> penguins in various ways. <laughs> Or maybe okay, so maybe the example is like some random bird in a rainforest and a penguin. Again, they just rainforest. care about different They don't conflict, right? Okay, yeah, sure, sure. But like Ignore humans. When you're at the level of like so it seems like we all share one environment and we all kind of want to do different things to it. And this seems to me like that mm-hmm. is a source of conflict. Mm-hmm. Especially at the point when like which we are at now, where you're kind of reshaping the world to conform to various mm-hmm. goals you have. Um it seems like that's a problem potentially for for all animals. Yeah, but okay, if I, if I only care about what happens in my neighborhood, and you only care about what happens in your neighborhood, and our neighborhoods are very far apart and very different, and not competing for the same resources. I mean, this is my relationship. Like you build all your houses with, out of wood. I build mine out of yeah. steel. That is my relationship with most people in the world, for sure. Right, um, and that's why we don't typically conflict with most people in the world. Yeah, um, indeed. So it's a good point, but um, I guess uh, on the other side, uh, the more you kind of have broad preferences about how everything goes, and the more there are these kind of uh, sort of like global environmental variables that we're all trying to set to different yeah. values. Like um, our preferences extend over overlapping things. Yeah, which which is true of the Earth's ecosystem. I don't know if that's true in space. Like I have no idea. Um, then then um, that would tend to mean that uh, different preferences do conflict. Cool. That makes sense. Yeah, and again, I'm not sure how this is. I don't think this is very precise, but there's maybe something there. It's a good thought, I think. Um, yeah, and then here's a thing which might be relevant. I remember Robin Hansen talking about this thought that in some sense, recently, as in over the past half century or so, it's more the case that global leaders, like the global elite, share preferences. It's just like more of a kind of homogenous yeah like elite culture and this might be a reason robin does have this view uh i i think i've become a bit less convinced of it over time because um so like right before world war one the world was dominated by european countries plus the united states Mm -hmm. um and uh the rulers of russia germany britain uh, Bulgaria and some other places were all um, grandchildren of Queen Victoria, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that seemed like more cultural integration than we have today. Mm. Um, and then, like prior to that, like in the Middle Ages, um, there was this kind of like you know pan-European elite culture based on attending the like great universities and uh, speaking Latin and, and church stuff of various yeah. kinds. And it, it just seems like this is something that goes up and down over time. And arguably now we have like one integrated world system, which was obviously mm-hmm. not the case in like the period of the Roman Empire. And um, that means that the up periods can be more up, but I'm, I guess I'm not sure that there is really this strong trend that Robin sees. So one thing is um, he talks about, it seems like a big piece of evidence that he uses uh, in favor of this point is this sort of harmony of, of regulations across jurisdictions. Yeah, right. So like why do basically all rich countries seem to ban nuclear power in yeah. some way. I mean, it's an interesting question, but like, why did like a bunch of different countries uh, ban alcohol consumption in the early 20th century? Yeah. Um, I mean, so his response when I asked him this question was like, well, 
banning alcohol consumption was not like a way of like helping the world at the expense of your country. Mm -hmm. Arguably, people think about nuclear power in those terms. On the other hand, like, is that, I mean, I, I might be kind of mischaracterizing his view a little bit, but is that really why nuclear power is banned? Is it like kind of a global, is it like this is to help the world, even though it's at our expense? But just to be clear, like, like when you say to help the world, the thing I had in mind was you care as a world leader that's part of like some group of world leaders about your reputation yeah. on the world stage. And insofar as it's this norm of like banning alcohol during prohibition or banning nuclear power, um, then going along with that norm is going to like help. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, is it, is it, yeah, that's, that's the mechanism he has in mind. But like, is it, yeah, but yeah. So is that so different between banning alcohol and banning uh, nuclear power? I, I really don't know. Nice. So we've talked about world government. We've talked about coordination short of government. The third factor you mentioned as a reason that we might avoid um, an evolutionary future is something to do with there being a defensive advantage. What does that mean? Yeah, so um, to start with an example. So re recall the uh, hunter-gatherer thing, like hunter-gatherers were out-competed for the most part. Yep. But uh, some hunter-gatherers were on islands that were mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere, and they were not out-competed for this mm -hmm. reason because there was no way for farmers to get to them. Mm -hmm. okay. um, so uh, like the Andamanese might be an example of this. The who? The people on the Andaman Islands, okay. like you, you know those 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 guys who are like throwing spears at helicopters and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, those people may be an example. Um, and uh, basically, one way you can think of it is like, ordinarily, it's hard for hunter gatherers to defend against agriculturalists. However, if you're in the middle of the ocean, it's very easy to defend against agriculturalists. They just never show up. Um, so you might think that uh, future technology will uh, create a situation similar to the hunter-gatherers on isolated islands. Yep. Um, and then that would enable people to avoid collective action problems by avoiding the need for collective action. If we have this concern that like people are going to um, um, like build like tons of digital mines that are like hyper-optimized to be economically competitive, mm -hmm. uh, and if we don't do that uh, in our own place, like. Uh, like so, then there's a question of like, okay, so different nation states may have different rules about what kinds of digital mines can be like can be made. Um, if it's the case that like everybody has like an antimatter bomb mm -hmm. to blow up the entire world, um, then um, as soon as the the state that made all the bad digital mines is like coming to attack you, you can say like, hey, you really want to find out if I'm going to press sure. this button? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And then they have to leave you alone, and you can do your own thing, like whatever that is. So everyone has got their own metaphorical island, yeah, well protected island. And that means that everyone can just get along with whatever totally uncompetitive thing they want to get along with. Exactly. They're not worried about being overtaken. So they can choose their own future in that sense because there's no, uh, the competitive element is gone. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm imagining what happens if you turn the offense defense balance dial right up towards defense so that it's just like yeah, almost free. Yeah, I think that's the defense. idea. I will highlight that the, uh, the paper, well, I, I think I'm taking this out now, but like there is a, a risk of using this offense-defense terminology in a very like unintuitive way. Mm -hmm. This is something that okay. Lucas Finvaden pointed out. It's like if you're talking about how like a bomb that can destroy the entire world is like a defensive thing. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of sure. weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there like a technical definition? There is. I think we should probably not sure. get into it, but just yeah. say like if it's the case that you can protect your own resources without uh, uh, great constraints on what it is you do with your resources. Mm -hmm 
then there's less of a kind of collective action problem. Uh, and then there's less of a kind of possibility of an evolutionary future. Yeah. If in some sense it's cheaper to react to yeah, exactly. aggression than to cause it. Um, yeah. Then again, so like we're turning up the dial right towards defense. What happens in that world? Imagine that each state. Maybe better to say towards the defender. Towards the defender? Okay. Um, <laughs> if that applies to like each country in the world as it is now, then maybe that means uh, that countries need to worry less about arms races, like literal arms races, because they're just like happily sitting there in their well-defended territory. Exactly. Um, and also in general, they need to worry less about ceding to competitive pressures to, for instance, be like economically competitive um, and more wealthy. Uh, and they can just get along with whatever- Whatever they want to do. They, yeah, sure, great. Um, yeah, and so, so there's been some discussion of this, like Carl Schulman had a blog post about this and Paul Cristiano uh, elaborated on it. And that's- it's actually pretty much all the discussion there's been, <laughs> um, even though it seems like a pretty important thing to think about. Um, it seems like one idea is like, so eventually like different parts of space will not be accessible to each other. Yeah. So it could be like, if you wait until then, you can have your own place that literally no one can ever come to from the yeah. outside. Uh, and then how is there going to be competitive pressure? That seems to be one At of the thoughts that people have. Between those places. Between those within places. Now, within sure. is a separate problem. I agree. Yeah. Um, I guess before that point, it's you know a while in the future. There is this question about whether um, the environment of space favors the defender or offender. So one consideration is that, like in space, it's really easy to see someone coming, probably from right. quite a long way away, and maybe that that favors the defender. They can just get ready in time. So the idea is, if you see people coming in space, mm -hmm. then you can defend yourself against them. Something like this. And so the defender is advantage in space. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot. I, I don't have a strong view on the offense-defense balance of space. I do think that's a very important input here. Um, I mean, there's other stuff, which is like, you can get like a projectile going pretty fast in space, mm -hmm. and there's a huge surface. Like, they can come from any direction, so mm -hmm. how are you going to block them all? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take that big of a projectile relative to a planet to like really mess yeah. things up. Yeah. Um, so that could be another argument on the other side yeah, of this. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a strong view. There's a really good one. Yeah, yeah, the one, it's about like an Ender's Game or something. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, let's just find it. It's called Ender's Colder Wars. And I think this gives an yeah. argument that space favors the yeah. offender, yeah, the aggressor. Yeah, this is, this is a really right? good post. That's where I got the fast projectile thing. Okay, nice. And also, I guess he makes this point that like space favors a first strike policy. Yeah. I because mean, it's this... hard to retaliate. Yeah, that's right. That's the idea, right? It's like, it's often hard to know where the initial aggression like the first strike comes from and so it's harder to commit to second strike but then that's the kind of the opposite of what you were saying yeah it is i was giving a consideration to right right space no i'm not yeah I don't, fair enough i, I don't have <laughs> a that, maybe it's he the 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 tagline of this post is mad mutually assured destruction will not work in outer space preemptive strikes are not guaranteed um so you know big if true got it uh, and like mad being a kind of defensive mechanism right yeah if you can just like believably exactly. commit is, to retaliating and so okay bad news to the defender if this argument if this argument is correct great cool uh yeah but that, so with defensive advantage the basic point i want to make about this is like i don't know who has the advantage sure. yeah. and um it's uh, uh more research is needed yeah so okay here's a thought that like passed through my mind when i was reading this section it's very natural to think, or for me to think about offense and defense in the context of like literal conquest. So like 
you know, literal wars that different countries can fight. Um, but there are other ways where you could have competitive pressures leading to undesired futures. Um, one could be to some groups just spread faster than other groups. They just like copy themselves right. really fast or whatever. I mean, so you could have a situation where it's like whoever grabs a star gets it permanently and no violence is allowed. Yeah. And you could still have a selection for people who really just want to grab things. Yeah. Well, like in some sense, it could be kind of intuitively speaking, equally likely to, to attack and defend regions in space. But still, you get these evolutionary outcomes. Right, so it's, it's mostly just about first mover advantage in that kind of case. Or, or rather, it's about like selective, like who's just better at fighting, not, not who's the defender. Yeah, so there's this obvious point that like there are factors other than the offense-defense balance that yeah. determine the future. And then my question <laughs> that, that is... That does seem right. <laughs> my question is, are there like analogs for the offense-defense balance that apply to these other factors? Or is it just considering yeah, conquest? I think it's not fundamentally about conquest. Like, okay. um, So in the case where um, everyone is trying to grab parts of space and um, let's say there's no violence, mm. um, it's just whoever grabs it gets to hold on to it. Um, you might have the exact same concern that like whoever's most obsessive about grabbing will get most of the space. It could just be that being really obsessive about grabbing does not matter that much for as a determinant of how much space you get. And I think this is kind of what Carl Schulman is saying in his blog post where he's saying, like, look, just the, the optimal strategy in that world is grab as much as you can for yeah. now and then save it for later yeah. when you don't need to grab anymore. Wait, if I'm remembering the right blog post. So it's called spreading happiness to the sure. stars is a little harder than just spreading. And the consideration here is like maybe there is a strong trade-off between like desirable futures that involve lots of happiness and getting a bunch of space really quickly, like being yeah. really grabby. Yeah. Carl's point is that actually seems like a weak trade-off. Because you just, you grab you just have space. to preserve the goal and yeah. grab. And basically, you just have to like, for now, you have to accumulate capital until you're safe from your adversaries, at which point you turn to yeah. doing good stuff with all the space that you grab. Yeah. This, yeah, how does this fit into the whole framework because it's like an example where you I would just say lean into the defensive advantage because it assumes see, that at right. some point there's a time when you're safe i see yeah i think i could have been clearer about that this makes sense um and this is the case where like the goals preserved through the competitive yeah, period you have to assume that that's going to work as yeah well. yeah yeah okay cool great so those were three big reasons we might avoid what you've called an evolutionary future as a reminder this is a future um, where due to competition between actors, the world ends up in a place that almost no one would have chosen, like from a starting point. Let's talk about what this all means, what it could imply. I guess mostly this has not been like a, you know, normative conversation. It's more just like how could things shake out conversation. Um, but yeah, here's a question. Um, do you think an evolutionary future, as you've described it, would count as an existential catastrophe. So it really depends on the definition of an existential catastrophe. Hmm. So the definition in the paper that coined this term, astronomical waste, is an existential catastrophe is something that would either annihilate Earth-originating intelligent life or permanently and drastically curtail its potential. Mm -hmm. um, so it depends on... So it would, an evolutionary future, the way it's being defined here, would not annihilate. Mm -hmm. originating life um and there's this question would it 
permanently and drastically curtail its potential. Um, so in order to assess that, you need to know what would happen in an evolutionary future, mm -hmm. how good or bad would it be in absolute terms, and also what is, what is the potential of Earth originating life? So what is one way of interpreting it is the potential is the best possible outcome. Mm -hmm. And um, it drastically falls short of its potential, say, if it's like 1% as a good. Um, like the likelihood that you escape from this evolutionary future to a great future or the fraction of value that this... The, the fraction of value future is, is what okay. I meant. Yeah. Um, and if the fraction of value... So like, it seems like there's just a really wide range of things that could happen in the future. Mm. Um, Do you have a citation for that? Or? <laughs> well, one citation you could use is there's this... Um, there's been various attempts, uh, very speculative, obviously, to estimate like how many people could there be yeah. in the future. Yeah. You get like, you know, like 10 to the, some big number. Um, and then um, if you think about it, like that implies that like every number that's less than that. Yeah. Yeah. So like um, one, one feature of like a really, whatever, fat, heavy tail distribution, so like in particular a power law distribution is that. Um, if you just like draw a number from the distribution, you're close to guaranteed, or maybe literally guaranteed, to be disappointed in the sense that like your draw falls below the mean. Well, okay, my my understanding was the power law distribution does not have a mean. Uh, or the means the infinite, mean is in which case, or the means infinite. So with the power law distribution, you're guaranteed. Yeah. To draw below the mean, in general, with just like fat tail distributions, um, you might think that it's like just very likely. That you draw below the mean and like far below the mean. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I mean, that's a, that's maybe a more sophisticated way of putting my point, which is something <laughs> like if there's all these possibilities, sure. And an evolutionary future is, from the perspective of what is best, is is, is an evolutionary future is not like selected according mm -hmm. to being the best. That's kind of part of the definition, mm -hmm. and um, the correlation between uh, what is what evolves and what mm -hmm. is good is not going to be perfect probably i mean you'd have to supply some further argument that it yep. is yeah um and this sort of implies that like you're not going to get the very best thing from an evolutionary yep. future and if the difference between the very best couple things and everything else is vast mm -hmm. which seems intuitive mm -hmm. um then you could say an evolutionary future is likely to drastically fall short got it and according to that definition that interpretation of astronomical ways you could say that that would be an existential catastrophe okay but it seems like, so here's one possibility. We fall into some kind of evolutionary future over the next few centuries, say. And then like someone figures out how to get out of it. And then over the long run, things are great again. So by figures out how to get out of it, do you mean, so like one reason to think, two reasons to think that like some evolutionary equilibrium might mm -hmm. not be reversible in that sense. One is, as you mentioned, um, people's preferences might change so that they like the new way that things are. Yep. So then they won't want to reverse it. Another argument, which is related to this argument that economic growth might eventually slow down, is like a lot of the big changes in the history of the world have happened because of changes in like you know, mode of production is not exactly what I mean, but like, you know, agri like uh, hunting and gathering to agriculture sure. yeah. or um, agriculture to industry. Um, and, and you might think like there's like only a certain number of these changes that will ever happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm because eventually you're doing things in the most efficient way. And um, at that point, there won't be any of the kind of concomitant uh, social and moral changes 
that are associated with uh, uh, these big economic changes. And so you might get stuck at the last step. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm just like pointing out that it is an important question um, how likely it is that these futures really are just like totally locked in or whether there is some possibility of escaping to like close to ideal futures. Um, yeah, I would agree that that's an important question. And it's like additional to the question of how likely it is that we fall into an evolutionary future in the first place. Yeah, so I think it should probably be defined if you're going to do the multiplication thing, which is... It's kind of goofy, but like if you want to do that, uh, you should stipulate like, and it's irreversible. I see. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then you just like gave some reasons to think that it might in fact be quite robust. Yeah. I mean, you can make those arguments. And one is that like, it's quite rare that someone just has a great idea for like how to improve the entire world and then succeeds. Often like, <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. Typically that doesn't work out. Often like, you're relying on these like macro trends and like maybe we just don't have so many macro trends left. Also, you just like, like just for big changes to happen in the world, the way that's happened historically has involved these very, I mean, not, not big changes across the board, but like the very biggest changes mm -hmm. have involved these transitions between different kinds of production, basically. Yep. And yep. if there are no more of those changes, yep. that might kind of reduce the scope for like political or moral change in the future. Yep. This makes sense. Um, and also, like we were talking about at the start, right? There's some sense in which we're in this unusual period where like lots of things are open and we're not really subject to world shaping pressures. There's like a lot of wiggle room for a particular yeah. country to go its own way. Exactly. In general, like historically, maybe that hasn't been the case. And also it's possible to tell these like relatively concrete stories about how things get locked in. Like you have um okay, like a totalitarian leader that just like wants to enforce its regime for a long time. Yeah. Maybe there are tools which enable it to do that indefinitely long, which didn't exist previously. Maybe yeah. that kind Maybe of argument transfers. What, what kind of tools those would be? Something about AI, surveillance. So, something about AI tends to be the answer to a yeah. lot of questions about the future. <laughs> but like, I mean, one very obvious one is life extension. Yeah. If you had totalitarian yeah. leaders, I, I think you might have talked about And the fact that like values actually. can be preserved, complex values can be preserved yeah. for a long time, sure. just because of digital You mean like a digital, storage. because of digital error correction, you yeah. could have some object that represents values and then that thing can resist change. Yeah. There's a separate question of whether the existence, I mean, like there, there are still like a lot of Bibles around, but it's not clear that those values of the Bible are being implemented. And it's not like if we had made sure the character- It seems like a necessary change. rather than sufficient. Yeah, I agree. Another thing that's going on, right, is when I think about totalitarian regimes, often they can enforce themselves for long periods of time. Well, like even if everyone, literally everyone just knows that this thing is um, bad, um, it may be in their interest not to defect because there are like strong punishments for defecting. And if it becomes easier to surveil um, subjects, um, then you can just enforce these like penalties even more strongly. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, you could see a totalitarian regime that relies on the kind of coordination problem that prevents rebellion to stay in power. You could say that is itself kind of an evolutionary future. Yeah, right. Like there are these kind of transfers of arguments, right? Yeah. Anything else you think it's worth saying about like this question of how permanently this kind of evolutionary future could be locked in? Um, yeah. Uh, so like how permanently it could be locked in or how 
yeah, sorry. No, I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> okay, nice. um, yeah, but we should probably, we may want to talk about how good or bad it would actually be. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's do that. How good or bad would it actually be? So the basically, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think people have taken really strong positions on this, like kind of Scott Alexander and Robin Hanson have mm-hmm. really staked out opposite views on this in a somewhat extreme way. Mm-hmm. Um, so Robin thinks it's going to be really good. Scott thinks it's going to be really bad. Um, I don't, I think like, basically think we need to look into this more i think um one input might be like how you think like how good or bad you think like the history of life on earth has been okay like in terms of, i mean whatever you care about but like just to keep things simple let's pretend to be classically utilitarians and say like how much like happiness has been experienced by like creatures minus how much suffering okay yeah. and the bigger uh that number is then probably the more optimistic you should be about an evolutionary future mm-hmm. Um, and it's a thought that to date human history or just the history of life on earth yeah. has not been mostly determined by particular actors with ideas about how things should go exactly. but rather by these evolutionary forces right that's the idea so it's like when they had like when the first bony fishes were evolving they didn't have a yeah. government that was making that happen yeah and i do think that question is remains pretty open mm. like i think yeah, a lot sure. of people have like this strong view that like oh yeah well animals definitely more suffering than uh, happiness I, i'm not at all convinced of that uh-huh. yeah um on the other hand you might say like okay well yeah it's better than nothing but like the best possible future is so much better than that but, so like from that perspective i can kind of see uh it, it may not matter too much if you, if you really kind of want to look at things in this existential risk way sure yeah uh, but it seems like there is this intuitive question separate from whether whether it'll be an ideal future which is just Will it kind of suck or will it just seem fine? Yeah, yeah. How good or bad will it actually yeah, right, be? Exactly. Regardless of, of whether it is the existential risk of so-called value erosion. Yeah. Or at least one consideration is like, how good has evolution been so far? Yeah. Um, and then another one, um, which I think, uh, um, this is not original to me, but there's this question of like, what is your account of well-being? Because mm-hmm. if you think that well-being is the satisfaction of preferences... Mm-hmm. It seems like evolution creates things that have preferences that are often satisfied in the environment they're adapted to. Is that right? I mean, like... Also creates a bunch of preferences... That are not satisfied. To get frustrated all the time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if it's like... If you have like an objective list theory where it's like people have to like, you know, they have to like sit there and like listen to Beethoven or something. That seems like quite a random thing to fixate on. Whereas if it's just like... Easier to completely miss within like an objective... You can completely miss. There can be like none of that. Whereas with with preferences, like the preferences do have to be to serve the adapted function. I think preferences do have to be satisfied sometimes. I mean, I, I could be wrong about that, but yeah, it seems right. Like if you think about like like animals, I I think their preferences are typically understood to include things that they do in their natural environment, like roaming around, mm-hmm. and eating stuff mm-hmm. like that, right? Yeah. Um. So that would be another input. Um. Yeah. Do you have a sense of which direction that pushes? I think that pushes if you believe in a kind of preference account of well-being, then um, that would push in favor of optimism about an evolutionary future. Interesting. And then a third thing is like, what do you think about consciousness? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you think, so Hansen's view, Robin, I should be consistent about what I'm calling him. His (laughs) view is uh, consciousness, as I understand it, his view is like tons of systems are conscious. And um, 
then there's no risk of this like thing that Bostrom is concerned about with like th- there will be these entities in the future that are not conscious. Um, and so that makes you more open to a wide variety of entities that might evolve. And that's a reason for optimism, as long as you think that consciousness is like necessary for a good future or ipso facto good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does Robin Henderson give any other positive reasons for expecting an evolutionary future to be relatively good? Um, well, he, it's more like a non-evolutionary future will be bad. I see. what he okay. tends to focus on. <laughs> One thing that comes to mind is markets, uh, broadly speaking, as maybe an example of some kind of um, evolutionary mechanism in the sense that it's determined by competitive forces where, I don't know, maybe we've just like ended up with a bunch of products and services that people a hundred years ago wouldn't have preferred, largely because they probably wouldn't have imagined them. But from our perspective, like we've got more stuff and we like this stuff. Um, what were we talking about? Oh yeah, are there reasons to think that it could be bad? Scott Eisander, you mentioned, thinks this apparently. Well, basically, I I mean, yeah, I, I think it's sort of like, so it, like Hansen has this book, Age of M. Mm-hmm. He talks about like all the different modifications that will happen to M's and like they'll be copied to be more efficient in their work. Mm-hmm. Um, and like they might only get run when they're working. Yeah. So like they don't, they probably end up with like not very much leisure time. Yeah. Which I think empathetically we could think about oh, that would that would be so bad if we didn't have any leisure time. Now, um, you can blunt that by saying like, well, subjectively, like they just get sort of reverted to the state prior to the le- like where they just rested. So it doesn't feel like they're exhausted all the time, but they still kind of lose. Intuitively, option. like you read that book and it just sounds kind of bleak, right? That was <laughs> At least for me. how I felt when I read that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's probably worth saying like, theoretically speaking, it's not the case that, you know, the malfusion equilibrium or something just needs to be bad for some reason um like you could be absubsistence and really happy or whatever uh, yeah yeah no that's a great point so also the way that malthusian is at least sometimes defined in the in the like economic history literature and i think maybe ecology as well is like just the point at which um the population stops growing right but right. that could be like you know that could be anything that could be yes. like a great point um so yeah. So yeah, like that's kind of uh, arguably a hole in this argument. Where do you come down? Do you have intuitions about whether such a future, if we reached it, would be good or bad on that? I guess my feeling is it's probably better than nothing, but um, we should maybe try to uh, improve on that, uh, provided it doesn't involve taking extreme risks. Okay. Um, yeah, you want to say more about what those risks would be or like so, what sure, would the measures yeah. be to avoid So it? one thing you might try to do, so basically if we think about the three steps we've gone through, the world government, multilateral coordination, and defensive advantage. So um, we might try to intervene at any of those steps to make that more likely. And we probably can't affect the defensive advantage thing because that's kind of a function of like what gets invented in the future. You know, yeah. we have a little way to control that. But we could try to create a world government. That's obviously like a pretty risky thing to do though. Uh, yeah. because you could create like a bad regime that controls the whole world and there's no check on it. Yeah. Like um, it would make it easier to reach this other failure mode that you described right at the beginning, which is like, we decide to do something bad or such a yeah, regime. Exactly, that's yeah, that's a good something. way of putting it. Uh, and like, um, the, like so for like the Soviet Union, like the reason the Soviet Union, which is a bad regime, collapsed is, is partly because the leaders were able to look at the rest of the world mm-hmm. and see like things were going better in other mm-hmm. places. Right. Um, if that's not possible anymore, I think this point is due to Brian Kaplan and his uh, 
chapter in that book, uh, Global Catastrophic Risks. Um, if that's not possible anymore, then there's much less of a, tra a, tra a check on uh, totalitarian regimes. Any other ways we could avoid an evolutionary future? Yeah, so the other one I hadn't talked about is like multilateral coordination, and I'm more optimistic about promoting that because I yeah. think it's more um it's like, more robust, right? More robust, exactly. It it reduces other risks too, like the risk mm -hmm. of nuclear war mm -hmm. or something. Um, and uh, I think there's like stuff people could work on actually if, mm. if people want to do that. Um, like, um, yeah, basically just like promoting ways for states to cooperate with each other. Um, so that could be on the the technical side, like um trying to so like if leaders had like lie detector machines um and then when hmm. they were like trying to sign like an arms limitation treaty they would say like we're not going to violate this treaty and then the thing would be like why um, <laughs> the big red buzzer yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um then that would make it easier to negotiate these kinds of deals uh, uh -huh. and so i mean I, this one's pretty build rough. the buzzer build the yeah. buzzer yeah that's one idea um another is like promoting this idea of like escrow accounts mm, yeah um like in that paper about environmental trees. Um, and I think there's a, like a lot of things in, in this uh, neighborhood that could be explored. Yeah, nice. That's super interesting. Um, great. And then, okay, another question, separate from how good or bad you think an evolutionary future would be, is how likely you think it is. Yeah, so um, I don't have a s super strong take on that. I guess like what I, what I will say is like my current view is this is like a reasonably likely. Mm -hmm. um, uh, giving a number, um, I can do that. Uh, so we have the the three um, things that if none of them happens, an evolutionary future will happen, mm -hmm. uh, or that's the model anyway. So we can multiply through the probability that each of those things doesn't happen, contingent mm -hmm. on the prior one not happening. Mm -hmm. And um, that has the result of giving us a, a lower bound. Yep. Um, and so if I do that, I get something like... Um, like uh, one tenth, or in that ballpark. Okay. Um, I I don't know. How, huh, that's seriously. lower than I had expected. Oh really? I can imagine just thinking that this is in some sense the default. Yeah, but like, I guess yeah, maybe. But I mean, so I think if you think it's the default, that might route through thinking like it will happen anyway, even if one of the conjuncts or disjuncts yeah. or whatever they are exists. Oh, sorry. This is a figure for a lower bound. Yeah. 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 Okay. That's. Yeah, I think if you think it's going to happen by default, then it's like, yeah, well, the world government will just mess up. And, yeah. Which is like a plausible view. I don't really know how to evaluate that, but I'm sympathetic to it. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, last point, which I didn't mention earlier, is that you can maybe get some dynamic where you like temporarily solve the global problem with some intervention like a world government, but then you have a new problem, which is within that government. Maybe there are certain kind of worrying evolutionary type competitive forces yeah exactly um, or within your you know council of people coordinating with one another that is a good point Eleanor ostrom talks about these like second order or nth order coordination problems where it's like you've agreed to surveil one another but like how do you enforce that again and then how do you enforce the enforcement and so on right yeah um so maybe there's this kind of or they get, i think this is probably like a version of the same point but she says some i think it's her says something um about like saying that like a government removes the commitment problem is kind of question begging because like well, how does the government commit? Yeah, totally. Corruption is a thing, for instance. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's do some final questions. Here's one we ask everyone, and you touched on it a bit, but is there any research or just other work that you'd love to see someone do? Maybe even someone listening to this? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that could be interesting. 
Um, so one question that I think about a lot is like, um, for it to be true that future technology mitigates structural obstacles to coordination for rational agents, um, it has to be true that like it has these specific properties of being formally verifiable mm-hmm. um, and, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be cool if somebody who has a background in like formally verifiable programming languages or information security or something like that yeah. um, were to just look into this question in some way. Yeah, so another is like, I think we mentioned this a little bit, but like is there's this question like is uh, there a kind of increasing convergence on uh, norms or like politi- policy norms mm-hmm. at the global level? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is like very underexplored and the arguments mm-hmm. pro and con remain kind of hand wavy. Yeah, this was like what we're talking about when we're talking about why is nuclear energy banned in yeah. a lot of places? Why did prohibition happen? Yeah, is prohibition a similar case? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, that, that kind of stuff. Cool. Um, and then a final thing would just be like the stuff about the offense-defense balance in space. Yeah, I would I, love to see. I have no idea about that, but it seems like very important. When I was looking into this, there was that one blog post. Yeah. And like a couple of comments on forums. That's the, the extent of the literature on this yeah. issue. I read a book that was kind of about it, but not really. Okay. What's so um, this sounds great. What's the book? Dark Skies, it's called. Okay. And can you also recommend things for people to read, books, papers, anything else? Yeah. Um, yeah, a few things. So one is that paper, uh, Rationalist Explanations for War by James Fearon. Um, another, which came up earlier, is uh, this, um, the, the paper about how like um, it, it's not necessarily the case that everybody will be Amish in the future, mm-hmm. um, which is called, it was in the Journal of Demography, and um, it's called Intergenerational transmission is not sufficient for positive long-term population growth. Great. And um, two more things on top of that. Um, The next one would be um, this talk by Ben Garfinkel, which there's a transcript of on his website called Mm -hmm. The Case for Privacy Optimism. Nice. Um, I think he gave this talk at uh, DeepMind, which is an AI lab. What's the um, argument? Just Basically, yeah. uh, Briefly, the argument is like... um, you might think that future technology will just increase the level of surveillance and like privacy will be totally lost. Yep. But um, it, it might be possible for privacy to be preserved because uh, some future technologies and in particular privacy preserving machine learning uh, might enable only the relevant information mm. to come out. Okay. Yeah. So the example he gives is a bomb sniffing dog, which can smell a bag and determine whether there's mm. a bomb in it as mm. opposed to like opening the bag right. and you see everything. Yeah. Great. Um, and then the final one would be Meditations on Moloch by Scott Alexander, which is like a, a very nice piece about these issues. Awesome. Do you want to mention H of Evan Singleton or is that? And and yeah, and all, <laughs> I mean, it's just getting to be too much. Sure, you can say as many as you want. Right? Oh, That's okay. Funny. Yeah. And then two other things um, by, uh, so one is a, a paper by uh, Nick Bostrom called uh, What is a Singleton? Mm-hmm. Um, and the final is this book, uh, The Age of M by Robin Hansen. Um, where he explores like one specific evolutionary future scenario. Cool. It's quite Great. interesting. Also, there's a good Scott Alexander review of the book. Yes. Shoulder, so we'll link to both of them. Great. And then finally, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, yeah. Um, so my email address is just my last name and then my first name at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And you can maybe like include that in the yeah. notes or something. Yeah, sure. Great. Okay. Give us Eddie. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Finn. It's been a pleasure. That was Give Asadi on whether humanity will choose its future. 
If you're looking for links to stuff Keith mentioned or a transcript of the episode, then you can go to hearthisidea.com forward slash Asadi. That's A-S-S-A-D-I. As always, here are some things you can do if you want to support or improve this podcast. Uh, first, you can write an honest review of us on Apple or Spotify or wherever. I think that's a really effective way to help. Um, second, you can follow us on Twitter, as long as it's still around. We are just at Hear This Idea. And lastly, you can get a free book for filling out the feedback form on our website, where it says, give us feedback. Okay, as always, a big thanks to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>